Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the big questions. What are the legal problems that face the aging? And how can we best handle those problems? My guest is Dr. Roberta Flowers, Professor of Law at Stetson, Director of the Center for Excellence in Elder Law, and President of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. We discuss the messy character of cognitive capacity, and I learn how to find a good elder law attorney. So come, have a seat with us, and learn to listen with me. started. Um, what is elder law and how did you get interested in it? So it's important to understand that elder law is kind of a different area of law than we're used to. Um, usually the okay. law that we talk about, criminal law, is based on the substantive area of law, right? The crimes. With elder law, it really mm. is about the nature of the client, right? The client is elderly. And so what makes elder law so interesting is that it's a very broad-based area of law because it's anything that can impact the elderly, right? So it can be anything from housing issues, right, and um, long-term care facility needs to guardianships if they've gotten to the place where they really need somebody not just taking care of them but making decisions for them to Medicare planning and Medicaid planning. How do I pay for those mm. benefits? And then, of course, probate after somebody dies and estate planning for their estate. So elder law is a very broad based area of law that covers all of the things that we face as we age. Um, and so mm. it makes it a very interesting yeah. area of law. It also makes it a very good place for people that are that are aging to look for a lawyer who is mm. an elder law attorney because they're gonna really be looking at yeah. the holistic nature of the person, right? Um, you know, sometimes we see it in the medical field, right? Like I, I have uh, a trouble with my stomach and I have trouble with my uh, feet and I have trouble, and everyone, I have to go to a different doctor for each one of those. What's nice, right, as right. I age, and then those doctors aren't talking to each other, and so I've got all those issues. With elder law, I go to an elder law attorney and they're going to be looking at me holistically. They're going to be saying, okay, here's some things you may not have thought of um, as you age. Here's some things we want to put into place so that if, heaven forbid, dementia comes into our aging process, we have those documents right. in place. So I think that's what makes elder law mm. so exciting to practice in and also why people mm. really as they're starting that process of estate planning, right? They really think more holistically about what they need, like a will. Okay, so you need a will. Everybody's like, oh, I got to get a will. But a will is the least mm -hmm. important thing that you need. What you really need are all of the things that are going to help you live out your last years on this earth in a good way right? Mm. Who gets your stuff after you're dead? Yeah, that's important, right? I guess. But how you live <laughs> between now and the time you, you know, mm. you meet your maker is much more important. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that elder law really mm. plays. It's really about not only planning for your assets after you're gone, but planning for your life mm. here and to make that life 
as good as you can make it um, as you live out those final years. So you're, you're, you know, the fourth season of your life, as they call it sometimes. So that's, that's kind of what elder law is. Um, I got into it a really weird way, right? Um, I tell my students in law school, um, most of our paths, our career paths are not straight. They're, they're windy. They go different ways. Mm. They, it's what's great about being a lawyer, right? Is that there's so many ways you can practice law. So I started out my career as a prosecutor. I was a prosecutor for 10 years, came to Stetson um, uh, mm. as a um, advocacy teacher, trial advocacy, evidence, all the things that have to do with being in the courtroom. Um, and then I started getting into ethics mm. and really looking at professional responsibility for lawyers and discovered this amazing area called elder law, where the ethics are so interesting and so interwoven with human nature and, and the crises that we face in mm. life and family issues. Loved it, loved it. And so came through into ethics, mm. um, became a part of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. Um, family, I call it. Um, and it kind of, that's how I've kind of moved up. And um, now three weeks from now, I'll be the president of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, which is pretty darn cool. I'm pretty excited about oh, that congratulations. part of yeah. my career. Um, and so again, this idea that careers kind of take weird paths. Um, the thing about elder law that I have discovered is that elder law attorneys are some of the most satisfied lawyers they really feel like mm. they make a difference daily in people's lives. Um, I have worked with lawyers where, you know, we had a, a, a family member come in and mom and her autistic son, who is older, he's 35 or so. Mm. And mom is ending, you know, coming to the end of her life. She's not worried about her life. She's worried about her autistic son's mm. life. Who's going to take care of that man that she is taking care of all of her life? Yeah. And the ability for an elder law attorney to kind of mm -hmm. talk through, okay, here's some things we can put into place. Here's some things that we want, you know, here's a trust that might be good for him. We can fund that trust in this way and it won't affect his government benefits. And seeing that, that mother mm. walk out of that office like 110 pounds lighter, that's why being an elder law is uh, such an, a fantastic career, such a fantastic way to, to make a living. So. That's kind of the elder That's law awesome. side, of, side of, of, yeah. uh, of the world, if you will. Yeah, I, I do want to. And if you don't want to uh, answer, that's totally fine. You said that it was a little bit weird how you got into it. Uh, you know, is, is there a specific story uh, about that? You know, you got into ethics and then you discovered more about elder law. Is there is there a story behind that or is it just like it, it just it's just a study? A, it's it's a story of and I think this is just so funny that you asked that question. Um, I had a dear friend who probably is one of the most mm. uh, famous elder law scholars and uh, people um, going to her, mm -hmm. going with her to a conference on elder law is like going with the Queen of England. Mm. Like everybody wants to talk to her. She's amazing. Her name is Becky Morgan, and she's one of my colleagues at Stetson. And she took me to a NALA conference. And I walked away saying, these are the nicest people. Because remember, I taught ethics to prosecutors. And let me tell you, teaching ethics to prosecutors, criminal prosecutors, is a completely different world. They're going to fight with you. They're going to push. They're going to pull. You go and teach ethics to elder law attorneys, and they're just like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. 
nicest folks ever. That's what turned the corner for me. <laughs> and actually, it was funny because I was reading an article yeah. that my colleague Becky wrote a couple of years ago where she was saying, yeah, I took one mm. of my colleagues to a NALA conference and all she kept saying is, these are the nicest people, right? And she wrote this whole article about why elder law attorneys <laughs> are such nice people. So that's how I kind of got into the area of elder law um, and haven't turned back. I mean, love it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that is awesome. So you said there were specific, you know, obviously nice people practice elder law. Would not have considered that, but it makes sense. Um, you talked about there are very, it, it kind of feels like there's a lot of nooks and crannies, right? Because, uh, and I think it, there is something really wise about, okay, we have this single cause that, you know, aging, it happens to everybody. And it generally brings about not all these right. issues at once, but it does bring like, there's a certain cluster of issues right. that tend to attend this. And so you're going to run into exactly. some of those altogether. And so just having that all consolidated, right. that makes sense. Um, what were some of those ethical, um, whether they're conundrums or just uh, kind of interesting nooks and crannies that really drew you uh, from kind of that interest? Yeah, so there, there's probably three or four that, that I would say really are kind of unique to elder law. So the first thing that's kind of unique mm. from an ethical perspective is that there's this kind of weird question that every elder law attorney, every time they meet with a client, have to ask. And that is, who's the client? Mm. Now, you'd be thinking, well, that's a weird question. Like, who's the client? Like, if I'm a criminal prosecutor or a criminal defense attorney, I know exactly who my client yeah. is. And in most situations in law, you know right. exactly who your client is. But what happens with the elderly is that many times other people mm. are seeking the help from the lawyer as opposed to the elderly person, right? So the son comes in and says, hey, mom's, you know, really starting, you know, to go downhill. I'm wondering if I should, you know, get a guardianship. I wonder if I should do some planning. And I have to say to myself, wait a second, mm. who's the client? Is the client that son that's coming in to talk to me or is really the client, the elderly person? And I need to know what they want, not what the son wants, not what the daughter right. wants, not what the husband wants. But what does that client want? What does that elderly person want? That's a unique thing in elder law that most lawyers don't have to even think about. Right. It's whoever walks through their door and is going to pay right. their bill. That's the client. I'm good with that. Yes. Right. But for an elder law attorney, many times they're going to be contacted by somebody who's not actually the person who the services are going to be rendered to. Um, and so they've got to get used mm. to that. They also have to get used to not only identifying who the client is, but telling all these other folks that really want to help, you're not the client. You don't get to make those decisions. Yeah. You don't get to tell me what to do mm. because my client is your mom. And I need to make sure that your mom wants the planning you're talking about doing. Um, I need to know if your mom wants to um, do Medicaid planning so that she can pay for long-term care, um, a long-term care facility. So that's the first one that just always interested me, that this idea that unlike other lawyers, there's this question of who do I represent, right? Um, which goes kind yeah. of hand in hand with the second issue that really kind of piqued my interest. And that is the involvement of third parties in the representation, right? 
If I'm a criminal defense lawyer and I'm representing a client, there is nobody else that I'm involved with. I'm not asking anybody else anything else. Nobody else gets to know anything else about it. It's just me and my client. With elder law, we have a lot of family involvement. And with family involvement, right, we can have great support for the elderly parent or the elderly person, but we can also have dysfunction, right? We can have this, yes. I know, I know, PJ, you're going, in that families? seems impossible, no. right? <laughs> but we have this side of the family saying, no, keep her at home because we want to save mm. our money and not pay for nursing home. And the other side of the family saying, no, she really needs mm. to be in a nursing home. And this person saying, no, she needs a guardian because she doesn't know how to do these things anymore. And this person saying, no, we can, mm. right? So you've got this really interesting conflicts that... An elder law attorney has to be willing to kind of transverse their way through, right? So it's, it's mm. okay, who, you know, these people are calling me up. They want, you know, I have to keep telling them, um, no, you're not my client. Your mom's my client. Let me talk to your mom, see what she wants to do. Let me talk to my, your mom, whether she wants me to tell you anything about what's going on. Um, and so that family dynamic is so different in elder law. Um, and it makes it a, a great yeah. place to kind of, again, practice holistically, right? Like elder law attorneys will talk about, okay, I get all of it set up for my, my elderly client. And now I say, okay, do you want to have a family meeting? Do you want them to know what's in the will? Do you want them to know about this trust? What do you want them to know? And can I facilitate that conversation for you, my client, not for them, right? So that's an interesting um, added um, part of being an elder law attorney. Um, We all know that under the rules of professional conduct, we're supposed to be not only an attorney, but a counselor. Uh, And I will tell you in elder law, we we really have to learn how to be that counselor. Um, We talk about, um, you know, okay, so I'm setting up an estate plan for you, PJ, and, and I know that what you're doing is going to make your two children when you're gone, just go head to head against each other. Mm-hmm. I need to talk to you about that. Like, yeah. what's more important to you? Yeah. The division of property based on, well, one of my children was really good to me and one of my children, you know, didn't come and see me often enough, right? And so I want to give all my mm. money to him. And you say, okay, you absolutely have the right to do that. But let's talk about how that's going to impact your family going forward, Right. Is PJ going to be talking right. to Susan if Susan got all the money and PJ got nothing? Um, and do you really want to set up that dichotomy? So again, this kind of idea of sitting back mm. and saying, I am not just going to be the kind of lawyer that the client comes in and says, okay, I want to set up a will, do this, do that. Okay, I'll write it all down and get it done. I've got to be a lawyer that's going to be like, okay, great. You could absolutely do that. Let me talk to you about the consequences of doing that? And how can we put into play something that can make sure that that doesn't happen? Um, And so we really aspire Mm. to kind of be the, not just solve the problem you bring to me, right? As an elder law attorney, but to see all of the things that could happen that you might not have thought about, but I have because I've had enough clients to go, oh my goodness gracious, this can tear a family apart. Um, and so how can we fix that? Um, you know, Nayla is very proud of the fact that we are one of the few organizations that have aspirational standards. So we have obviously the rules of professional conduct that we all have to comply with in order to keep our license. But as an organization, we sat down and said, 
But how, how do we teach elder law attorneys to not just meet the ethics, but really do things that are right by this very vulnerable population? And some of our, our first aspirational standards are about this idea of family harmony and how do we talk to the client about family harmony and how do we put into place things that can prevent those sorts of, of things from happening? Because if you ask most elder law per, uh, elderly clients, clients that are elderly, and you say, what's the most important thing for your family to do once you are gone? Most of them are going to say, get along and see each other and be a family still mm. and not fight over anything. And so right. once we know that's in your heart as a client, then we know we've got to put into place those things that are going to make that happen. So those are the first two. The third thing that's just yeah. fascinating about elder law um, is because a lot of times lawyers are going to be dealing with people that are not totally incapacitated, but are certainly facing diminished capacity, right? So we really look yes. at a continuum, right, of clients that even though they mm. have gray hair, have no capacity issues whatsoever, you know, and we have to talk about not presuming right. because this person walks in with gray hair that they may have an aging problem or a, a, a cognitive problem. So they may have no problem. They right. may be totally incapacitated. Right. Which means they can't do the things that they want us to do because they can't understand them well enough. Basically, mm. the majority of the elder law clients are going to be in that what I affectionately call the muddy middle. Right. The middle where it's like, no, they're not totally incapacitated, but they certainly have got some diminished cognitive abilities. And I want to figure out a way in my office to, first of all, um, maximize their capacity? How do I make them have as much capacity as they can? So I've got to think about, well, do I need reading glasses sitting on my desk so that they can have reading glasses so they can read the stupid things mm -hmm. I'm trying to show them, right? Do I need to make sure my office is set up in a way so there's not glare coming in or there's not excess noise? If they have some sort of um, physical disability that I can take care of just by mm -hmm. that. Um, Elder law attorneys have to realize that some people are really with it in the morning and by the afternoon or evening, they really aren't um, because they are uh, what are called um, sundowners, where basically as the sun comes down, oh, okay. they lose their energy and their abilities. And so I've got to meet with them a good time of the day. I've got to figure out what's a good time for me to meet with them. With most elderly, it's not going to be early, mm. early in the morning because it takes them a while to get up and get going and get their things together. Um, but it's also not going to be late in the afternoon because many of them, their energy level wanes, right? I mean, they've worked really hard to keep it together. Um, those that have those issues, like I'm not saying everybody does, obviously they don't. Mm. But those people with diminished capacity, right. I've got to figure out, are there things I can do um, that I can make it better for them so that I can help them accomplish what they want, right? A woman comes into the office and yeah. she's got some cognitive problems, um, but she's not so far gone that I don't think she has the capacity to maybe do a power of attorney. And a power of attorney, right, which mm. basically is the authority of the principal, the client, to give that authority to somebody else, to pay the bills, to make sure that, you know, everything is okay at the house, all of those things. Well, 
if she has the cognitive ability to do that, right? She's still got some capacity. She's got some diminished mm-hmm. capacities. She um, repeats stories. She um, gets off focus sometimes, and, I, and the lawyer has to bring her back in focus. She doesn't always remember what I told her the last time, right? So she's got some, some capacity issues, but she's not incapacitated. Well, if I can get her through signing a power of attorney, giving somebody the authority to take care of her, mm-hmm. she may avoid go, having to go through or her family may avoid going through a guardianship, right? Where they basically have to go to court, mm. tell the court that she can't take care of herself, and then literally take all of her rights away. And so one of the things as an elder law attorney is I want to get those, those um, documents in place before the person loses capacity so that they don't have to go through the rigors of a guardianship. A guardianship is difficult on the guardian, especially if it's a family member that's a guardian. And it's difficult on the person who doesn't know everything, but understands certain things that she was able to do before she can no longer do, like drive a car, right? Like the guardianship Mm. has taken away her driving a car. And she can't understand that because she's never had a traffic ticket or a traffic accident. Um, And so if we can get those documents in place, if we can get a power of attorney for finances, if we can get a um, power of attorney for a healthcare surrogate, a living will, all of those things that can be put together now so that when she is incapacitated, everybody knows what she wanted, right? And that kind of goes back to what we talked about early on, PJ, the idea that Elder law is really about putting together those documents when I have the ability to say, no, no, I I don't want a feeding tube. I do not want a feeding tube. I want you, my Mm. son, PJ, to understand I don't want Mm. a feeding tube. And if I lose capacity, I have put in place the documents for you to know what I want. And so as I Mm. process from this life to the next, I have somebody who's making sure that while I'm still in this life, I'm having things done the way I want them done. So that's another place where I just, I love the ethics of dealing with diminished capacity clients. And and I'm going to tell you, you don't go to a conference that involves elder law attorneys that doesn't have at least one, if not two um, presentations on this issue of diminished capacity because it's so prevalent in elder law. And it's so important because the one thing we really Mm -hmm. believe in, um, in the elder law world is that people deserve to have as much independence and autonomy as they possibly can handle. And so that idea of trying to put into Mm -hmm. place what they need to remain independent and have some autonomy for as long as they can um, is really, um, really what drew me into this whole um, issue of elder law. One of the things I just love talking about is diminished capacity. And I love talking about, you know, the, how do mm. we assess capacity? Because it's not like a doctor, you know, giving you a test on, you know, mm. who's the president and what day of the week is it and draw this clock for me, right? Perfectly good diagnostic diagnostic tools, sure, but they don't sure. get to where we are. Where we are is, I need to know if you can understand what you want to do and understand the consequences of what you want to do so we can get it right, done right. before possibly you get to that place. Mm-hmm. You may never get to that place, but before you get to that place where you can't make those decisions, you put into place those people that will make those decisions for you. 
Um, so capacity is just yeah. a, a big ethical issue. Um, you know, we have rules of professional conduct. I'm not going to say we don't have a rule specifically on this issue. But there was a scholar one time that said, a heart surgeon gets about as much guidance from a valentine that a lawyer gets from the rules of professional conduct. Now, I don't want to go that far because that does seem a little far, right? <laughs> but the truth is, just like a valentine, it's like the, you know, it's the, it's the shape of a heart, kind of. Right. Um, the rules of professional conduct are kind of like a shape of lawyering, but there's so many issues. And that's especially true for elder law attorneys. Um, mm. And so it's always fun to kind of talk about how, how do we, you know, make sure that we obviously don't violate the rules of professional conduct, but how do we really act in a way that's really aspirational towards how we help these folks? Um, and so I think one of the final things that kind of interested me and kind of got me involved in ethics is this thing called Medicaid planning. So Medicaid planning is mm. um, I'm getting Medicaid, right? Or I want to get Medicaid to pay for my long-term care. I need to go into a nursing home. Um, so let's just take a, a client. A client comes into you and says, hey, my mom is in hospital. They're telling me she has to get out of the hospital in the next two days. She can't come home, right? She can't come home, but the hospital is discharging her. And I need to figure out how do I place her in a facility and more importantly, how do I pay for it? They're expensive. Yeah. Right? Long-term care yeah. is expensive. Yeah. And mom didn't have a long-term care insurance policy. We, we could talk about those. There's some good and bad of those. But they come in and they need, how do I figure out how I pay for this? And the way we pay for it is through what's called mm -hmm. Medicaid. So Medicaid will pay mm -hmm. for um, people who need long-term care if they are below a certain level of assets, all right? And the truth is, it's not right. a high amount of assets. So the problem is that I'm too rich to have Medicaid, but I'm too poor to pay for long-term care insurance. And so this idea of things that can be done totally legal, right? We're not talking millionaires that can become Medicaid eligible. We're talking about a couple who has right. $100,000 in savings. That's all they have left in the world. And dad's going into the nursing home, but mom's still got to live, right? And so how do we put into place right. um, ways to keep those assets in a way that'll keep mom from being homeless, right? Although the house is exempt, but be without any money and... Um, taking care of this nursing home bill that's going to come due really soon and be a lot. So what interested me about yeah. that, right, is that there's a part of me that first started, I was like, hmm, is that ethical? Is it ethical for elder law attorneys to be making people who could pay for nursing home, at least for a short period of time, be eligible for, for government mm -hmm. benefits? And how does that work? And is that true? And I got to tell you, for many years, uh, we debated that, right? We debated, or at least some people debated. I will tell you there are congressmen that still debate that, right? Should we eliminate this ability for people to somehow put their money into trusts or put their money into burial um, plans and still get Medicaid? And so that interested me in, you know, that ethical issue yeah. of, you know, what if I'm a lawyer? 
who I'm not sure I believe in this idea of Medicaid planning to keep people that have some assets still on um, the government dole. But the more I got to know about that, the more I understood that, first of all, what they're using is the same thing that people use that are rich when they use tax loopholes, right? I mean, it's the same thing, right? Um, right. And number two, we're not talking millionaires. We're talking moms and pops, probably your mom and right. my mom, that know she's not you know, penniless, but she certainly couldn't afford, especially if we put her into the kind of nursing home that probably we would want to put our parents into, you know, right? 6000 a month, 10000 a month right? That's not going to last very long. Um, and so that idea of using what's there to make sure that these moms and pops can survive, um, even if they need to go into a nursing home. Yeah. So that was kind of, if I had to put four things, those are the four kind of ethics issues that mm. just like enticed me into this world of elder law. And I got to tell you, I've never regretted it. It's just been a lot of fun. Oh, I could see why. It's really fascinating. A couple things from what you've said. Um, one is uh, when you talk about who is the client, uh, do you run into, uh, it, I, it seemed like you kind of implied this, but I, I just want to make sure that I'm not, you know, that I'm tracking with you. Do you often have your client is not the one footing the bill for the lawyer? Um, a lot of times we face the issue of the, um, child is using the money from the estate. They maybe have um, a joint account with mom. They don't have any funds in that, but they have oh, a joint okay. account with mom. And so they're paying for the lawyer. Um, we have some ethical restrictions about mm -hmm. that, that we have to be very careful about when a third person is paying the bill. Right. I was wondering, um, first of all, the person who is getting mm -hmm. the services, the real client has to consent to it. Um, second of all, I have to maintain mm. confidential um, information. I just because you're paying my bill doesn't mean you get my information. Um, the information is still confidential mm. to the client. And the third issue that we always have to think about is I have to maintain independent decision making. I have to maintain my decision making that you might be paying the bills, but you're not telling me what I'm going to do. My client tells me what I'm going to do to the best of her ability. Um, yeah. And you, just because you pay the mm -hmm. bill, don't get to be a part of that decision-making process. So yes, it happens. Um, but again, we have to make sure that that person understands just because you're paying the bill doesn't mean that you are the client. Um, I have a dear friend, uh, Mary Alice Jackson out of, um, out of uh, actually Florida, who says she sometimes has wanted to like have t-shirts in her office. And some would say client and some would say non-client. And so once everybody got in the room, she'd be like, okay, you put your client t-shirt on. You put your non-client t-shirt on. And whenever you forget that, I'm going to point yeah. to your t-shirt and you can look down and say, oh, I'm in the client. Okay, I got it. Yes. Maybe just a sign. Just you know, a sign, Just like yeah. wave your sign. Yeah, no. Yeah, like the attorney, the person starts talking, you go, no, no client. Um... Client. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I can imagine that it's very helpful and sounds like this is standard practice to tell all these things up front, yeah. right? Like you don't want someone to be surprised right. by that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes total sense. I just wanted to clarify that because I'm sure that gets tricky, right? <laughs> People tend to think money follows right. with privilege, exactly. right? Exactly. Or privilege and, follows and money. And let's be real. I mean, elder law attorneys. Yeah have to make a living. I mean, they're, you know, they can't help people if they can't afford to keep the lights on. 
Um, and so obviously you've always got to weigh those two things, right? Well, I've got a kind of cantankerous, like, you know, son who I'm not sure is going to stay out of the way when I'm taking care of dad, but boy, do I need this case? And so, you know, there's kind of that, you know, uh, yin and yang of being a business person, right? Cause you got to make a living uh, and you got a salary. Mm. You have to pay out to all those folks that are helping you along with, Ooh, do I really want to take right. this case? Because I'm not sure I'm going to be able to control this son who keeps trying to interfere on the decision-making and you've got a dad who, right. you know, Loves his son, right? But he's also letting his son kind of run over him because it's not worth the fight, right? And so you've got to keep trying to figure out how do I get to the point where, one, I know what dad wants. Two, I know that dad isn't being unduly influenced, which is a whole nother fascinating area of elder law, right? Where you have the issue of... You yes, know, yeah. PJ coming in and he gets, you know, his parents to give him everything in the will and Susan gets nothing. And now mom and dad are gone and Susan is suing PJ and she's claiming that PJ basically talked his parents into this. So there's that interesting issue um, on the probate side also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very much the muddy middle, too, I'm sure, when you're talking about like, uh, how incapacitated were, you know, right. was he able to leverage them not knowing what they're doing or do they actually like, yeah, Susan, Susan yeah. was a jerk and yeah. like he actually, yeah, and, and I will you know, tell cause you, you don't know, always know what those whole, conversations were. Yeah. That whole assessment of their capacity. Right. And one of the things we encourage attorneys right. to do is to make sure that you kind of document why you thought they had capacity. If you were going to go forward with this service, because you mm. may forget, Right. Um, and so there's lots of tools out there. Right. There's some really good tools that are kind of like checklists that attorneys go, okay, properly dressed, right? Buttons, buttoned right. Although I sometimes get my buttons wrong, but you know, looks put together. Um, you know, I ask her a yeah. question and she can respond to the question. So kind of taking really time to document why I said, yeah, Bobby Flowers is a little bit incapacitated, but when I explained this to her, you know, she said this and, you know, she looked like mm. she was together and, you know, whatever. So um, kind of documenting yeah. that assessment of capacity is so important, especially in the undue influence area. Yeah, it's so interesting because to me, even with uh, my grandma, like something that's incredibly important when I can tell when she's with me or not is her eyes, but that's really hard right. to document, right? Like, like, yeah, I mean the brightness oh, of yeah. someone's eyes, I think we understand dealing with someone who's elderly, right. that's a big sign, but exactly. I mean, how do you document that? Right. You're like, yeah. their eyes were bright. bright eyes that day. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and you're exactly yeah. right. Like you kind of, you know, it was once said about obscenity, you know it when you see it, right. You know it, you're like, I see it. Right, she's right, with right. me today. We're going to have a great conversation or Ooh, this is a rough day for her. And that's even harder, right? When if you're talking about a lawyer, like, you mm. know, grandma, you've seen grandma, you know what to expect of her, right. but I'm a lawyer and this is the first time I'm seeing her and I'm trying, I'm trying to assess because the truth of the matter is a lawyer has to assess whether she even has the capacity to hire you because a hiring is a contract. Right. right. And so if she is so 
diminished in her capacity that she can't even understand that she's hiring me as a lawyer and she's going to be paying me and here's the consequences of that, then I can't even be hired by her. And so, you know, that assessment starts Mm. from the very first moment I meet the person um, trying to figure out whether in fact they have the capacity to hire me and then to do whatever they want, a will, a gift, a deed, a contract. Um, a trust, whatever it is they're trying to do. And obviously, the more complex the services I need to render them, the more, you know, kind of executive uh, processing they need to be able to do. Um, But what we always remember is, Mm. um, I had a, a, a very good friend that used to say that capacity is more like a lava lamp. Now, I know you're a little young, PJ, but I think lava lamps came around a little bit in your lifetime. But understand, in my lifetime, having a lava lamp was a cool, cool thing. Anyway, so I don't know why I went off on that tangent. See? Um, Oh, no, I I love it. I love it. um, Diminished capacity is kind of like that lava lamp, right? It ebbs and flows, right? Mm. It's not like an on-off switch. It's like a dimmer switch, right? And so for the attorney, it's trying to figure out where in that ebb and flow is the person I'm talking to today. Do they have the capability of doing that? Now, you add to that, that Mm. just because I have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's doesn't mean I'm incapacitated for writing a will, right? Alzheimer's Mm. is a diagnosis, right? I, as a lawyer, am trying to figure out whether you still have capacity, you still understand who should get my property, and you understand who I want to get my property, and you understand what your property is. That's not a high standard for doing yeah. a will. Um, but an attorney's got to be able to assess mm. that capacity, figure out if they can understand it, and then go forward with it or not go forward with it if they don't think that they do have capacity. My uh, granny, actually, uh, she's passed away a couple, like about 20 years now. but. Um... She, uh, she had Alzheimer's very badly. Um, and, uh, but it's interesting what she did remember. So for instance, they had a garage sale because she had too much stuff and they were selling bolts of cloth and they were very, she got very upset. And then, um, they sold all the bolts of cloth off. One person came back and said, when I, un- I unfurled the bolt of cloth, hundred dollar bills came out. And so she had taken, <laughs> and so they were like, Oh, we just sold a bunch of money to, you know, this one person was thankfully like, you know, I like, that's why she was upset. She did remember. Yeah. She's like, there was cash in that, exactly. but she couldn't express yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and so it's always interesting. Uh, the lava lamp is interesting because it, it ebbs and flows. Um, and it's interesting to see, even with my grandma, that's my, um, my dad's mother, uh, how uh, it, it, there's a point where I felt like we went from she would uh she used to be sharp and then she'd have moments of where she'd be cloudy and now it feels more like she's cloudy and there are moments where exactly. she's sharp and there there was a distinct difference when right. that happened yeah. um and so you've mentioned like the muddy middle you've mentioned um and this is something we walked through with my grandma when that decline happens seems to be one of the most dangerous moments right so she was in charge of her own finances she was in charge of her own doctor visits and we were just starting to notice something was wrong. But what happened in the meantime is she was missing doctor's appointments because her husband thought that she had it together. She was missing um, her medicine that she should be taking, all those sorts of things. 
uh, how do you develop? And you, you, I think you mentioned uh, obscenity. You know, I'll know it when I see it, and it's kind of this appeal to uh, common sense, kind of a, a general uh, faculty of judgment. How do you? How do you? Uh, obviously, there's practice, but what are what are some ways to build that sense of judgment to make your sense of judgment sharper so that you're uh, and how do you train that as uh, an elder yeah, care I, lawyer? I think there's a couple of things in there. Um, what the first thing is that uh, we want to be very um, clear about is that lawyers need to have an intentional method of doing it, right? It's not just off the cuff and I do mm. it one way this time and one way that time. So the actual ability to set forth, this is how I intentionally make this assessment, right? Um, these are the things I am going mm. to each time ask, document, re-ask if I need to, but not be kind of just helter-skelter about it. That's number one. Um, you know, I mean, other kinds of attorneys, they can be helter-skelter about it because it doesn't happen that often to them. But because this is a so important to our ability to serve this clientele and be so important to make sure that what we do for them is valid. Like the worst thing that can happen is you set up this whole estate plan and it falls apart because you didn't do a good job of, of assessing capacity, right? Or of or, or mm. undue influence. So the first thing is to be intentional, to have an intentional way that you do it. The second thing is to understand and to be comfortable with exactly what is the standard for capacity for each kind of service the person wants to do, right? So the capacity for contracting, mm. the capacity for a testamentary gift, um, the process for uh, gifting um, while you're still alive, um, the process for, you know, what is the standard? What do they have to know? What do they have to understand? Um so, um, or deeding, what do they need to know about, you know, deeds? So it's different elements for the different services that you're going to provide them. So being really clear about what are those things they need to understand? So for example, if I'm doing a, a, an estate plan, I'm doing, um, you know, wills and trusts and, and uh, documents for their property after they're gone, they need to understand what is their property. They need to understand what kind of property do they have? Um, they need to understand who is the natural um, recipient of that, right? Their daughter, their son, whoever. And then they need to understand the consequences of what they want to do, okay? Now, I said that's a minimal standard, but those are the kinds of questions I need to be asking them. I always laugh when I hear attorneys say that they ask them the day of the week. And I go, well, that's great, but if... If you're retired and you're in the house all the time, you may not know the mm. day of the week. I mean, I got to be really clear with you. My husband is retired and I sometimes have to tell him the day of the week. <laughs> and I absolutely know he doesn't have diminished capacity, but he doesn't care what day of the week it is because they're all Saturday and Sunday to him. <laughs> right. So asking that question is silly. It's just a silly question. Oh, man. Or what day of the month yeah. is it? Or, or what month is it? Or Who's the president? I mean, for gosh sakes, for the last year, we've been asking ourselves who's the president. So I can't very well expect <laughs> some person that lives in their house to do that. So 
So being very clear about the kinds of questions that you ask them, don't use some sort of diagnostic test. Like for a while, lawyers got into this Mm. idea of having them draw a clock because there is a diagnosis about whether you can draw a clock with a face and the numbers, what that says about your, you know, cognitive abilities. But we don't know what that means. Like, wow, that's a crappy clock. What, What does that mean to me with regard to whether they know what they're doing. (laughs) So, um, so we try to train um, them to be very aware of what is it the person has to understand in order for me to um, do that service Mm. for them. And then number three, being very aware of how much their incapacity is based on your incapacity. In other words, you're not talking slow enough. You're not explaining it well enough. You're not using documents that have big enough font. Like, so what is it you can do to make this person have capacity to sign that power of attorney that keeps them from going into guardianship, you know, and their family having to deal with the the trauma of that and them dealing with the trauma of that. So kind of, you know, being very aware of what am I doing? Am I talking too fast? Am I talking too soft? Am I... You know, am I um, not repeating things? Am I using too big of words? Like all the things that make it more difficult for them to understand what's going on. Mm. Um, and then I guess thirdly, some are, what are some real red flags and what are really not red flags, right? Like um, short-term memory loss is really not a red flag. Like a lot of us get short-term memory loss you know, we can remember, you know, I wrote, mm. read some on Facebook the other day. I can remember my phone number from, you know, my, my home when I was a kid. I can't remember the password I created yeah. yesterday. Um, so. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, oh, my gosh, I know. But that's right. short term memory loss. That's <laughs> not really a red flag. Yeah. I, I might want to see if there's something right. going on with that person. Um, but that's not going to be, oh, well, they're incapacitated because they can't remember that I told them yesterday what, what, what they needed to do. Um, so understanding that's not necessarily a red flag. Um, getting confused can be a red flag, but, but getting confused in a way that, that, as you said, with regard to the bolts of of cloth, right? Um, sometimes they can't Mm -hmm. articulate. But what they're actually thinking isn't mm. confused. It's really just they've yeah. gone to a different place than you. And so you've got to not have a presumption that says, well, they don't understand what I'm talking about. Um, we have a video that we use to train lawyers on diminished capacity where the woman um, has been scammed by um, a financial planner. And the attorney is mm. talking to her about um, a, pre- a repayment plan that they have worked out in the, in the settlement. And somewhere in it, she goes, so it's a payment plan. And she goes, yeah. And she goes, well, then I should get interest. And, and the attorney hears her and says, oh, no, this isn't a loan. Well, her having the idea of getting interest is not the wrong idea with them, a stallment plan. But because mm. the lawyer was just concentrating on her incapacity, didn't go, wait a second, what she just said made sense. It might not have been exactly what I was talking about, but it made sense. So making sure that we don't take confusion right. and automatically saying, oh, well, this person's incapacitated. But to step back and say, wait a second, yeah. why is she saying that? Oh, wait, that does make sense. No, I wasn't talking about a loan, but she, you know, she's got the right frame of mind going. 
so that not jumping to right because humans live with incapacity because humans like all humans live with some incapacity right like confusion is a normal thing more incapacity (laughs) than others right (laughs) and and, and there's those nights when there's no capacity whatsoever so um right so this idea (laughs) of not seeing it as a a presumption Mm -hmm. that just because somebody is 90 years old like, don't even try to say my mother is incapacitated at 91. Does she repeat stories? Yes. Does she, you know, does she get a little confused sometimes? Yes. But incapacitated? No. Um, and then there are mm. people that, you know, will say, oh, well, this person made this decision. Um, she went out and bought $30,000 worth of Hummels. You know, those little statutes that come from Holland, Hummels? Yeah. Yeah, well, of course you wouldn't even know about it, right? But those of us that are older, we know Hummels were cute little kids doing different things. And so this woman goes out and spends $30,000 of her own money buying Hummels. Okay, I wouldn't buy Hummels. You wouldn't buy Hummels. But that doesn't make her incapacitated because she wanted Hummels. Gosh darn, if she wanted $30,000 worth of Hummels, she's got $30,000. Why shouldn't she do it, right? So what's always funny to me is, if I look back on some of the decisions yeah. that my eight, my children made when they turned 18, they probably mm-hmm. could have been deemed incapacitated because they made some really <laughs> stupid decisions, but they didn't have gray hair. Right. So now we, oh, well, you have gray yeah. hair and you make stupid decisions. That means you're incapacitated. No, it doesn't. It means that humans get to mm. make stupid decisions. Um, and so that, that's always something that I want people to understand. Um, my, uh, one of my colleagues is, is very much into her cats. And so she's going to have cats and dogs. So she's going to have a pet trust when she dies, right? She's going to make sure that money is left for her pets. That's not my thing. Mm -hmm. Like I have pets, but not going to leave money for them. Right. So The idea that somebody would make that decision, and I think it's like not something I would do with my money, we have to be very careful that Mm -hmm. we don't assign that a name rather than just people making decisions that people make, right? Um, And so that's interesting. Can you see, like, that's like so interesting to be able to look at people and say, okay, I wouldn't buy $100 worth of lottery tickets, but you know what? Other people do. Um, and so, you know, so yeah. that is so important, right? So knowing what the red flags are, but also even probably more importantly, not making presumptions about people um, because of the, the number, you know, by their age or by their, you know, their age or, you know, they have gray hair mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, some people, like, for example, let's say somebody, you know, a, a kid comes in and says, I want to move my mom out of her house. Um, you know, I, you know, it's not mm. safe for her. It's got stairs, blah, 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 blah. And you, and you say, well, wait a second. Mom gets to live where mom wants to live until you can prove that, in fact, she doesn't have the capacity to live there. Um, and so, you know, yeah. really not jumping to diminished capacity. Um we have a presumption that we all have capacity. I'm really glad of that most days. And so, you know, that presumption mm. um, is there. Um, and so understanding the red flags, understanding what's not red flags and maintaining the presumption that people have capacity until you say you find that they don't. 
Yeah. Thank you. That's super helpful. And I think, um, so, and I want to be uh, cognizant of your time. Uh, just a, a last few couple questions. One is, can you talk about the difference? I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to say it was too disparaging, right? But uh, the difference between professional conduct and aspirational standards, if you could elucidate that a little bit. Um, uh, you know, obviously, you, you don't have the highest regard for professional no, 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 standards. No, 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 I didn't know. You know, I the, said the a valentine. scholar said that. I, it wasn't me. Um, okay, so here's how, here, here's how I explain it. That's fair, it, that's fair. All right? So if you think of, mm -hmm. your le if you think of a lawyer's uh, legal profession as being a house, right? Okay. In order mm -hmm. to stay in the house, they have to comply with the rules of professional conduct. If they violate the rules of professional conduct mm -hmm. that are in each one of the states, right? Each state adopts their own, but the model rules are, are used almost throughout the, the country. If they violate those model rules or those mm -hmm. rules as their license, they're going to get kicked out of the house and uh, they're not going to have a license, so they can't practice law. All right. But if all you are going to do is just comply with the rules of professional conduct, then for me, you're living in the basement of the house. Yeah, you're still in the house. You're, you're there. You're going to maintain those, you know, what I got to do, I got to do. And what I can't do, I won't do. Um, but I'm just really living mm. down here in the basement, staying in the house. When I talk about aspirational mm. standards, I really am talking about lawyers living in the penthouse. Lawyers wanting to be so far above those rules of professional conduct there's no question they're staying in the house. And not only are they not, um, they're just not staying in the house, they're living a really um, life that is making a difference, that is um, an honor to themselves mm -hmm. on how they handle themselves, an honor to the profession, right? They're acting in a way that mm. is not only, um, you know, right, but it's also good right? It's also what needs to be done for these people. And so for me, our NALA aspirational standards really talk about that penthouse living. Um, what does it mean? I mean, representing elderly people, it takes more time. Like I can't get through a 30 minute thing and think that mm. that person's going to understand what they're, we're doing. I got to take more time. I got to talk right. to them. I got to be willing to be patient with them. I've got to go back and forth with them. I may have to have them come into my office five times to get the will drawn up and know that they really understand it as opposed to some other client that wouldn't right. take half the time. So the idea of the aspirational standards is to really get elder law attorneys thinking about the important issues that aren't addressed in those rules of professional conduct, right? The rules of professional conduct don't mm -hmm. talk about, should I be concerned about the family members and family harmony? And should I be concerned about the holistic part of the person? You know, not just their legal needs, but, you know, are they being taken care of? Are, you know, do they have issues with their housing that we need to talk about? Um, so that idea of that holistic approach is really a professionalism issue as opposed to just an issue of maintaining my license because because I don't want to violate the rules of professional conduct. So that's how I see it. Right. I have to comply with both in order to live the mm -hmm. kind of life I want to live in my legal profession house. Um, but 
You know, mm-hmm. I think, my own personal opinion, those people that are always on the edge of those rules of professional conduct, mm-hmm. they're, they're just, they're, they're not breaking them, but they're really on the edge. Mm-hmm. That's not the kind of life a lawyer wants to live, right? A lawyer wants to live up there in the penthouse and do things really professionally so they can serve, especially with elder law, um, you know, serve a very, can be a very vulnerable population. Um, and it's growing every day. And so we want to make sure that mm. we are taking care of those people. I will tell you a lot of elder law attorneys are also very much involved in what are called special needs trusts, which are trusts with people with disabilities, because a lot of the same issues with government benefits and, and all of those issues um, come to light with regard to people with disabilities, even if they're young people. And so lawyers, elder law attorneys are right. very involved in those issues, sometimes because they're dealing with the, the senior, the elder who has a child with special needs, and they're trying to figure out how do I make sure that child is going to be taken care of when I'm gone. So that's just another kind of part of right. elder law um, that's a little bit tangential, but is, is a main part of the elder law profession. I'm so glad you touched on that. That was actually a question I had, but I had discarded for time. I was like, there's definitely some crossover when you talk about even incapacity, right? right? Like that's, that's a concern. Um, kind of as we, we wrap up here, what are for uh, family members and for the elderly, what should they look for in an elder care lawyer? And what, should, what kind of questions should they be thinking about and should they be asking uh, as they encounter these okay, issues. So let me start with the selection. Um, you want to look for somebody who has sure. elder law as their, their, what they're saying they do. And obviously, I'm just going to throw it out there. Yes. Um, you know, a great place to find an elder law attorney in your area is to go to the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. Um, and there, there's a page there where mm-hmm. you can find lawyers. Uh, the other thing to look for, if you have we'll a more complicated yeah. um, area, is to look for these four letters after their name, CELA. So they are mm-hmm. Certified Elder Law Attorney, a CELA, we call them. Um, that means that they have several years of experience, and they have gone through a very, very difficult mm-hmm. test that goes across all of the areas mm-hmm. of elder law. So you're looking at somebody that's going to be well-rounded when you find somebody that is a CELA. All right. So that's two ways uh, to mm-hmm. look for a referral. Um, the third thing I want to say is when you go in to see them, if they're not mm-hmm. asking you questions about things that you hadn't thought about, go find another elder law attorney because that's the benefit of an elder law attorney. Let's be really clear. I can go on right now and find a will on Google and fill it out. And it might, in fact, be fine, right? It might be fine because most of us in this day and age, a lot of our income is um, insurance based, which, which means there's beneficiaries. So that's going to go to the beneficiaries without any will at all. So, you know, most of us don't really, the will doesn't do that much, right? Especially if if I'm giving everything I have to my three children, that's going to pass naturally to them. So the will isn't the issue, really. Um, but you want somebody that when you go in, they start saying, okay, 
Let's talk about your three children. Should we talk about a trust for one of them? Um, how old are they? Um, you know, do you have concerns about them spending out this money? Um, let's talk about your healthcare surrogate. Who do you want to be your healthcare surrogate? And let's talk about that person. Like, you know, is that the person that really can make those decisions that you want them to make? Because those are tough decisions to make. Or do we need to, to, to have yeah. somebody else do that? Um, so an attorney that's talking through, okay, well, you didn't ask about this, but have you thought about a power of attorney? Let's talk about what that would do for you. Have you thought about a healthcare surrogate? Um, somebody that you have placed your life in their care if you can't make those decisions yourself. And what should that person look like? Who should have your power of attorney? Do you really want to give it to your son who basically hasn't had a job in two and a half years? And, you know, I mean, he's got now total control of mm. your money. So is that the right person? So when you go in there to see an elder law attorney, you should expect they are asking you questions about things you might not have even thought of. If all they are doing is you say, right. I want to do a will. I want to give half to PJ and half to Susan. And there's nothing else. And they go, okay. And they say, your will will be done in a week. That's not an elder law attorney. That's a person who is being basically mm. a scrivener, right? A writer. You tell him what you want. He writes it down. He makes right. it all legally proper, gives it to you to sign. Mm -mm. You want somebody that's saying, okay, have you thought about this, right? Let's talk about Medicaid planning. I know you're not ready for Medicaid right now, but let me tell you about the five-year look-back period, right? That if you give a gift five years before Got you um, go into uh, needing Medicaid, even if it's not a nursing home, if it's just at-home care, the, you might get penalized for that. So we mm -hmm. need to think about that. We need to talk about that. We need to understand what those penalties would be and possibly put aside money for that penalty period. Because the penalty period basically says, mm -hmm. where government says, we're not going to pay for Medicaid until you have basically paid for as much nursing home as the gift you gave away. I'm being really simplistic, but that's kind of the issue, right? But the most gotcha. important issue yes. is what you asked me. What am I looking for? I'm looking for a lawyer that knows, he knows more than I know, and he knows all mm. of the things that can happen to me in the future. And he is talking to me about that even before that happens. So I say to people, you're 55, you're 60, get in there. Talk to an elder law attorney. Talk to somebody that's going to look at all of the issues, not only about your estate, because that's what a lot of, I know my mom was like, well, all I need is a will. I'm like, no, mom, that's the easiest part. Like you're dividing it equally among your kids. That's not the issue. The issue is we need to talk about, do you need a right. trust in case you need Medicaid in the future? What kind of trust do we need to put you into? You know, you need a healthcare circuit and you need to talk to an elder law attorney about who that person should mm. be. It shouldn't be me you're talking to. You need to talk to an attorney. Um, so that idea that they're really more broad based, looking at all kinds of issues for you um, is really important. And obviously, you know, I mean, I say this to my students mm. all the time. It's a tough conversation to have with mom and dad, right? It's a tough conversation to have with them. Yes. Um, but you need to have it with them. You need to make sure that they understand, mom, I'm doing this because I want to make sure. I don't care where the money goes. I just want to make sure that you're, I don't want a feeding tube being placed down your throat if that's not what you want, right? Um, right. And so those tough conversations, um, the elder law attorney wants to be making sure that they are, 
putting those ideas in their mind. Um, I'll leave you with a weird one. Why not? Um, so a few years sure. ago, we discovered, well, I don't know if we discovered it, but it became light, which is sex in a nursing home, right? Like what, what, it, what is it that I want to be allowed to do? And what is it that, you know, I don't want to be allowed to do? And so lawyers are now talking to their clients about, you know, okay, you're married right now. If he goes into the nursing home, you know, so that's a weird thing to talk about, but good elder law attorneys are thinking, okay, we just got to make sure people have a good life. You know, I, I love the saying, yeah. you have to live until you die. And we want to make sure you can live um, until you die, right? And so that means having the tough topics, yeah. right? Talking about the kids. You know, you might have a yes. kid that, oh, no, I would never want him handling my money, right? Um, but, oh, he's the oldest, so shouldn't I use him? And it's like, no, use the person that's going to get you what you mm. want. And you know what? It may not be your kids. You might say, you know what? I don't really want any of my kids having to make mm. this decision. I want somebody else to do it, right? right. Um, so that's what I say to, to people, right? Get in there, get it done. You can change it. It doesn't mean that it's in, you know, at 55, you may feel very differently about, no, I want to stay alive no matter what. And by 75, you're like, eh, no, do not do that to me. Um, so you can change it. Um, but but a good elder law attorney is going to help you think through all of those issues um, in a way that's going to be very beneficial to your life. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Uh, Dr. Flowers, thank you so much for coming on today. Sure, it was fun. 